This podcast is presented by Rabbi Peretz Muchkin, speaking to the millennial generation. Welcome to the Rabbi Parrots podcast. I'm joined today by my good friend, Adam Fern. Adam, welcome. Thank you for having me. Several years ago, when we were both living in San Francisco, and we were having, uh, I would say, uh, our dating period in our relationship, I was brought over to your apartment to discuss Adam 1 and Adam 2. You remember that? I do remember, yeah. Yeah, we were discussing the lonely man of faith and Solveitchik and the idea of like what's his essentially his view on not just humanity, but on specifically Jews and how we deal with uh, our issues, internal, external. And uh, I remember that was like the first time we ever learned anything together. And I was super fascinated by the idea that uh, what we were learning about was how to make the most out of life. And that changed my whole perspective of like who you were. I didn't have one till then, but that was like somebody who wants to make their life meaningful in their own way is going to constantly deal with their internal realizations and their external forces that they dealt with. You're that guy. <laughs> who, me? Yeah, you're that guy. What, what do you remember about that conversation? Like, what, what was that about at the time? I remember, I don't remember the specifics of the book because it was pretty dense and like philosophical and like that kind of stuff for me, at least it stays in my mind while I'm reading it. And then like a couple months later, it just dissipates a little bit, but I remember it having, <laughs> um, <laughs> the impact that it had was like, how do you reconcile this, this contradiction in like a text and how do you pull that reconciliation and bring it into your life? And how do you think about, you know, just like general betterment? Uh, you know, I'm always looking for ways to improve, like whatever that is. And it's like, um, somebody, somebody was talking to me specifically about this within Judaism. I was like, you know, Judaism is more into rehabilitation than incarceration. They're more into like, what can we do to help this person deal with uh, their tsaris or their issues instead of just like, let's lock them away from, from having to confront it. And I think this is a big conversation for the future in general, like how does your morality happen in the moment? And then also how does the education of your morality and the goodwill that you want to bring to the world happen as time goes on? Yeah. I mean, this, this, this is like a topic that I discuss like a bunch, actually. It's like, how do you, like, I talk about like criminal justice reform. It's like, how do you rehabilitate people? Can you rehabilitate, can you rehabilitate people? Like what is like, righteous punishment what like is punishment even righteous um so it's it's interesting to hear that like judaism like is more on the rehabilitation side but like i remember from my learnings i, I could be off it's kind of like we're kind of a what's the word uh like we are like eye for eye people if, if, if i'm remembering correctly hmm. um so well, like it, it, this doesn't really sound like rehabilitation so i'm curious to hear like your you know, how, how you got that interpretation. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, first of all, as far as rehabilitation goes, there's no prison system in Judaism. So the first thing is, is that if there's no prison system, that means you have to handle the situation. You can't just lock people away. Uh, there what? is an idea of a city of refuge that people who have create, create um, have done heinous crimes that somebody else is a lot may come and take revenge. There's like safe zones, and there were these small cities that would house like the the kohenim, the priests who used to work at the temple had like 
places they could live. If somebody came to live with them, they were allowed to find refuge there with their families or whatever it was. But overall, it just shows that there was no prison system um, and no jail system for for that. Uh, there was merely like you had to stay at the rabbi's house type of thing. Like, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's worse or better. Uh, different discussion. But as far as an eye for an eye, there was never an eye for an eye, even in ancient uh, biblical times. An eye for an eye always meant that that if you take out somebody's eye, the value of their life goes considerably down, uh, meaning they were used to having two eyes and now they have one. And the court system determines what what type of penalty needs to incur based on that. In other words, is it payment? Is it uh, this? With, there's a, an opinion that the only way a Jew could be enslaved by another Jew is if they caused harm to them in a way that they can't pay back, like taking out an eye and they have no money to pay them back. They have to now work for them and help compensate for the life that they that they took from them. Pretty wild concepts, but it was never actually um, straight eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth type of thing. That was never enacted at any point and uh, never even considered. So it's interesting that it really... From we're talking two thousand years ago, they had no reason to lie to us and say actually uh, we're not into eye for an eye. That's like a modern thing. No, it was back then. We're talking at temp, second temple time. It was already in the text uh, of the rabbis of like that. That doesn't agree. So we know that they weren't doing it for any societal purposes. On the contrary, that was the real belief that that's what Torah was. It was about rehabilitation and about essentially trying to find real equilibrium for the actions. You know, for the causations of what we've done. Was there, were there prisons in that era, like to begin with? I don't know much about the history of that period. Like, well, was there an option for prison or was it like you're dead or, you know, you're well, exiled? I know, I know between the first and second temple when Jews were pushed to Babylon and, uh, and you have ancestral heritage dating back to that time, which you can mention in a moment. And like those our ancestors there have some famous stories written down in the prophets about them being incarcerated by the king because they didn't want to listen to the king and give up their religion. And the incarceration included, you know, crescendoed at least with like uh, them not wanting to change. So they were put at the, uh, you know, the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi were put by the fire. The prophet Daniel was put in a, put in a den with uh, lions. In other words, there were intense, intense punishments involved. And uh, obviously in, in the Roman empire, there was uh, gladiators was a form of a um uh, of incarceration, and then of course there was widespread slavery, which is very deep incarceration. So you had you had definitely all those ideas. Where in Judaism, the the concept of slavery was like from was just considered somebody who doesn't own their own time and their own work anymore. And the whole part of slavery is how do you rehabilitate somebody to get to a place? Um, because a lot of people actually like that. They like I know you know like whether it's uh, uh, Shawshank Redemption, somebody doesn't want to leave prison uh, because like that's where he's been his whole life, or whether whether it's biblical, like I, I paid my dues, but this life is much easier where I just do what I'm told and, and everything is taken care of. So Judaism needs everybody to break free of a slave mentality. And that's like a real part of, of being Judaism, right? Leaving, leaving Egypt is all about breaking the slave mentality, leaving that notion behind, and then actually dealing with life being difficult and hard. The fact that you need to be a leader, you need to be like inspired by the creator to lead your life. And that's, that's really hard. Um, but yeah, so go, there was a 
around then. So I think the novelty of Judaism was uh, was even stronger than than it is today. Today it's less only because more religions can tie themselves to Jewish ideas. Even a lot of liberal values can trace itself to Jewish kind of spirituality. So it feels less. But this has been we've been we've been trailblazing for a long time. I I like that. I'm I'm thinking through like I also remember like the those like horrific deaths that you referenced. I remember reading through those, like when I was reading the English, and like maybe it's like Tishabov or like Yom Kippur. Like there was like like the stories of all those like famous rabbis who were tortured to death. Yeah, that was at the end of Yom Kippur. We actually read them on both. Yeah, your school education's there. I see it. <laughs> yeah, I still remember. Yeah, I remember reading them like, oh, this is really bad stuff. And then I remember looking at the Hebrew words and be like, oh, that's how you say that. Like, I wonder if that's going to ever come in handy. Um, speaking of heritage, uh, your family, half, some of your family, you have, you're half Ashkenazi and half, uh, I guess, uh, uh, from, from, I don't, I don't, wouldn't even call it Sephardic, right? You're, you're from, uh, Arab lands. All <laughs> yeah, these I years. people use like Sephardic as a catch-all term. They don't get very specific between Mizrahi and Sephardic. I feel like there's very few people who understand or care about the distinction. Um, but yeah, my family comes from, I can trace my family back to 18th century Iran. And then presumably before that we were in Spain or Portugal uh, just based on the last name, my grandfather's last name uh, is Mizrahi, and he changed it to, uh, at, at some point. I don't really understand why, but he changed it at some point. But it was Mizrahi, which meant that from the West, which meant that we were, you know, from Portugal and Spain, which means that at one point we got inquisitioned, I guess, and then yes. exiled. Canceled. Full yeah, on canceled. Canceled from Spain, <laughs> Portugal in 1492. and they ended up in Iran somehow before my grandfather and great-grandfather walked from Nobandagan, which is the city they were from in Iran, which no longer exists, all the way to Jerusalem in like 1890 or something like that. Or my, not my grandfather, my great-grandfather. Uh, and then my grandfather was born in Jerusalem in like 1923. Um, so yeah, yeah, wow. crazy upbringing in, uh, well, the, well, the, these, our, these, our these ancestors, you know, put up with a lot and, but they were, they saw themselves within this narrative of like, yeah, my family's essentially been on the move, even if it wasn't your immediate grandparents and it was, but every 200 years or so we were on the move again. And, uh, and, and they were able to join the Iranian community from the inquisition if they were lucky enough to get to Iran, because, those were communities that had some roots going as far as pre-Second Temple. So mm -hmm. you have like Jewish communities seated in certain areas uh, north of Israel, uh, you would say, that, that have been there a long time. And although generally they weren't allowed to have massive population numbers, but they always incorporated some more people over the years that had to flee from other places. So yes, Mizrahi culture is misunderstood entirely but it's really, it's really uh, like like you have it, and having it means like you have your own ancestral, uh, you know, needs to understand. And when it's blanketed as just Jews or just or just uh, just Sephardic, and like somebody saying you're half Sephardic, half Ashkenazic, doesn't really, uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't paint the picture of what type of journey that is. 
and uh, and so mo most definitely uh, wor worth worth a lot of history. What what type of things have come from that like history that you think specifically inspire you or like or that you take from it? Yeah, I think it's really important that I'm able to eat rice on Passover. Um, <laughs> nice. you know, crit critical uh, component of Sephardi Judaism. Um, you know, the thing that I want to say is probably not very politically correct, but there's this there's this notion that Ashkenazi Jews are more book smart and Sephardi Jews are more like wily and uh, which also happens to be the, the name of my son and like uh, crafty and uh, more like street smart. And so, you know, bringing those two together, I get the best of both worlds. And whether or not this is true, I don't know. This is just like the stereotype. Um, generally speaking, stereotypes have some ring of truth to them, like they come up for a reason. Uh, and so, you know, the book smart piece from my dad and the street smart piece from my mom, uh, I think definitely defines me and how I approach different situations, um, especially negotiations, which I definitely get from my, uh, my <laughs> mother's father, um, who to this day as a 98 year old, uh, tries to do every single thing himself, including plumbing and roofing and accounting and you know floor refinishing because he's such a riot i enjoyed hanging out with him at your wedding we had a we had a great time he was uh, something else he seems 20 30 years younger yeah he's still going strong um well yeah. i i'll say i'll pivot with that your your background which is basically including the full gamut of jewish history uh let alone you know the the part you're missing is filled in entirely by your wife's family's journey as well. And I would say that that's informed your incredible uh, food palate. You have a, such a, you probably have the widest range food palate of anyone I know. And, uh, and I know a lot of people. So I, <laughs> I, I, I think of you, uh, when we first met, I'll tell you my story of when we first met that was, was a group of, of gentlemen came to, you guys came, I guess you were still in your twenties, new to San Francisco and a group schlepped you to come to us for Friday night. And you said something to them in, in advance of like, okay, I'll go to this rabbi that you like if we have dinner plans for afterwards, cause I'm not eating rabbi food. I'm pretty sure that was, <laughs> and then, and then all I heard from you doing, and they told that to me and if I listen, our friend's coming, but like, we got to leave. He, we have dinner plans. That's that was his deal. And then you come and you're like, what's going on? This food isn't rabbi food. This is good food, <laughs> you know? And uh, that's my, my, my recollection of the story. I mean, you are an amazing cook and you still owe me your chillant recipe. Um, so I will be uh, bothering you for that. Uh, yeah, I mean, like food is very important part of my heritage and my upbringing and just like my general day-to-day. -day. Uh, I grew up with a really amazing cook for a mother. Um, and I think I, and like her love of, of hosting and hospitality and, you know, welcoming people into the home is something that I continue to do to this day. And I, and I, and I think that's from my like upbringing. Like I used to go to my aunts and uncles every weekend for Shabbat. Um, she's also an amazing cook. Uh, and she would host like 20 people. She also has seven kids. Uh, so there's like a very rambunctious household with a lot of amazing food and there's street Sephardic food. Uh, and I remember like going over to their house and she'd be like rolling grape leaves for hours because there's so many people to feed and just like, you know, like one bite, pop them in your mouth. 
uh, yeah, I and food you know, food just really informs Jewish heritage ultimately, right? Every one of our holidays is about food, and if there's no food, then we end it with food. It's just really a nonstop right. source of uh, uh, of life in the Jewish culture. Well, I'm I sure remember. there's other cultures too, but I can only speak for our own of how influential it is. And I think it's more unique amongst other cultures for a simple reason. It's because we actually have two totally different cuisines in Jewish world. They're not, and and even in those two cuisines, they're broken into dozens. Like the Ashkenazi cuisine definitely has a wide variety from Russian, Polish, and Romanian to, uh, to uh, now its own even American style, where Sephardic, uh, I guess it has Moroccan dominant, Iran, uh, Iran Iranian uh, doc, uh, dominant, Israeli somewhat cuisine, so Middle Eastern. So there's really like, even within Jewish food culture, there's just such a variety of options. And then you mentioned earlier, for those who don't know, on Passover, you have to stick directly to your lineage food. If you're Ashkenazic, you have to stick to the traditions of Ashkenazic Passover food and Sephardic to Sephardic Passover food. And you're one of the few people, I think there's more. Or more who kind of have both. So you sort of get to like pick the one uh, that that will be the source of like cuisine for your household. So if, yeah, I, I would understand picking Sephardic one. There's more options. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that was like the, a fully legit move, but I made that decision when I was younger and I stand by it to this day. Hey, listen, um, man, I, I, no judgment here. On the contrary, you have the right. Your grandfather gives you just as much as your tradition as anyone else. There's a really good uh, like meme spreadsheet joke that i saw that you've definitely seen it's like about jewish holidays it says like there's it's like two columns like did they try to kill us yes (laughs) eat yes (laughs) it's like and that's like the you know everything is that or it's like or or no we don't eat but then what happens after we eat a lot and like well by the way the reason the reason why sephardic culture has more food it could eat is actually because they've they've Ashkenazic Jews have lost more of their tradition that they have to bring back. Sephardic Jews had a much, uh, and we're using now, now you know we're using Sephardic in a more holistic way, but Sephardic Jews have a more direct lineage connected to their longevity in places. So there's, there's, so let's say if we all started from Israel, where we all headed out from, those who became immersed in German, Ashkenazic lands, and Russian, etc., had a whole different cuisine available to them. So they mm. they lost the whole connection to all of that. It's only now in America now we have all these options. Uh, but I remember hearing my uh, grandfather tell me about the guys who ate rice for the first time during World War II when they ended up in China. So there's like really, uh, really an intense like tradition around it. And that I think brings up a lot for people. And uh, it, it gave me such a deep insight to you, who you are, the person, and how it's like when I grew up, if they, if you wanted to eat everything, they'd be like, oh, you're full of yourself. Why do you have to eat everything? And then I started meeting someone like you who it's like, actually, it's not about me eating everything. It's about like, literally, that's how I feel my ancestors journey is through the intake and the flavors that come from all the different sides that my family comes from. Yeah. Although I definitely lean more deeply into the Sephardic side. I feel like the Ashkenazic food, a lot of it came from like poverty. They're like, oh, we're poor. We want to eat fish. Like let's ground up a bunch of fish and throw some horseradish on it. Boom, you have to filter fish, which, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm sure. (laughs) And, And it's like, but why are we still eating this? Like we have some more money now. We can afford the whole fish. 
you know, we should probably do away with the gefilte fish. I know, again, unpopular opinion. Um, I, listen, I like gefilte fish, but uh, uh, my wife doesn't. And I tell her that when she cooks, she should only cook what she likes to eat. Um, that's my style. Like, cause I, I, I can, I can handle almost every, any type of food. So if I cook, I'll, I'll, I'll make a filter fish when she cooks, which is most weeks for Shabbat, she makes salmon because that's what works for her. And I think that's the American fish. The main thing is in Judaism is fish is a very spiritual food. And that's why we have like our own like life around what we consume uh, as it comes to like uh, from the water and fish, because we consider fish to be spiritual beings that are one with their environment in a way that we're not. So there's like this idea that when you consume fish, you're consuming something that's much more in touch and present to their reality. So we want some of that to rub off on us, but you don't need to filter fish for that. Yeah, I, so this is why I like talking about this stuff because my education didn't talk about fish being spiritual at all. This is my first time hearing about the spirituality of fish. Right. Um, so, you know, that's that Chabad perspective, I guess, that you, you bring to the table. I mean, it's, it's very specific. It's like, why does a kosher fish needs to have fins and scales? That's what it says in the Torah. It doesn't tell us a type of fish. It says fins and scales. And it's a, it's a redundant concept because there is no uh, fish that have scales and no fins. So it should have just said that fish with scales are kosher. And the, the, the mystics unraveled us and say, actually, it's because what you, you are, what you eat. And fins represent integration and assimilation, and scales represent insulation and survivalism. And you really need a healthy balance of both integrating into the world while retaining your identity. And fish represents that in the most deep way. And that's why for us, when we eat fish, what we're saying is that's what a Jew is. A Jew is supposed to be able to swim with the tide and move forward, but at the same time, retain the warmth and the presence of where they're from and what they're about. So it really is this like mystical creature that we connect to. And there's just like unbelievable amounts of like stories that pop up from the Talmud and, and other mystics of, of 2000 years ago about like their relationship to fish and Shabbat and how Shabbat's a mystical day where we like retain who we are, but we know what world we're living in. All these things really come together. So definitely, definitely uh, uh, gefilte fish is not the, that came a lot later and you're correct, probably from poverty. Yeah. People are not eating ground up fish for fun. That's not your. <laughs> I'll take your. I'll I mean, take now your. They are. Uh, now they are, no. but I think the original, you know, like Cholent came around because you couldn't cook on Saturday. Like it was, in, it was born out of necessity. Yes, um, I'm sure there was like a way more convenient way to make, you know, a bean meat stew that doesn't take that much time. Well, the proof is that Sephardic also have Cholent, but for them, it's not beans and potatoes and meat. It could be rice with eggs and meat and, and even yep. poultry, as well as even you can go to like Yemenite, they make jachnun, you know, layers of, 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 of fat with, with dough. So there really is like, there's elasticity there. Um, and so it's definitely also Chelland came from poverty. The only thing Chelland has on the other ones is that, is that when you create the right balance of fat and uh, and meat and like that, you're really getting a taste of shtetl life and like real, like like that you can't really get anywhere. And it like fills you up in a way that, at least for me, maybe for the other cultures like that. So uh, that's why, uh, listen, my secret to my chalant recipe is just fat. That's what it is, you know? Uh, and uh, But uh, I will give you all the details. You get it off camera, the full the full uh, heritage. We I think the way to do it is we have to make chalant together one day. And that's how it's 
really going to be transmitted. I give it over to you. I just taught my son, Mendel, he's 15 mm -hmm. now, and I just taught him how to make chalent. He makes the chalent now every week. Wow. You know, I so came out of retirement just to make you chalent two months ago. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, whether it's here or in LA, um, you know, you, me and Mendel will, will make some chillin' together. Well, uh, Adam, uh, tell me, uh, how are you going to transmit this foodie knowledge? What's the game plan for a little Wiley for your son? I mean, he's going to be, you know, he's first of all, not allowed to be a picky eater. Like I was, I was like a growing up eating like six foods for basically a decade, you know, really good foods, you know, pasta, pizza, the classics. Yes. Yes. Uh, of course. But yeah, I think my parents allowed me to do that and I'm going to take a stricter stance. <laughs> so Wiley is going to be eating whatever we're eating, any restaurant we're going to, he's going to be ordering off the menu with us. Uh, so I think we're going to make, you know, because food is so important to our lives. Uh, hopefully it will be important to his life as well. I have heard, uh, and I've also experienced this firsthand that children tend to rebel. So we're going to have to come up with a plan, uh, to combat that, you know, maybe we won't make him eat food, which will force him to want to eat food. We'll do a little bit reverse psychology on him. Uh, but you know, well, something... first off, I need, I'm going to bless you in major success, parenting success with the method. <laughs> you could only do your best and hope for the best outcome. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to try. We're going to, you know, bring him along. Hopefully his palate will do all the work. So we've been feeding him a new food every day so far and he loves it. So I think we're on a good path so far. All right. Amazing. And uh, tell me, uh, otherwise, uh, what, when uh, this coming Passover, this is going to be the first time he gets to taste all the different uh, cuisines, I guess. You're going to bring a healthy dose of both to the table. Yeah. I, I'm, I, whenever we host, I like to make the Ashkenaz and the Sephardic Choroset so people can see how much better the Sephardic one is um, side by side. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> um, and. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I love hosting uh, Passover. Actually, I think we'll probably do it with my family this year. But when I was out in San Francisco, like I would host the Seder every year and show like my family's traditions, which are, uh, you know, like for during Dayenu, we run around the table smacking each other with scallions, you know, to replicate what it was like during Egypt. I'm sure they weren't getting hit with scallions, but. Uh, it's a very fun tradition and, and people really get into it. And so it's a good way to bring uh, some levity uh, to, to the meal or to the, to the Seder before, you know, while everyone's very hungry. Well, during, um, in San Francisco, I got to contribute to your Seder, whether it's on loan, give you uh, Haggadahs for everyone to mm -hmm. use or uh, some of the handmade Shmura Matzah. So uh, mm -hmm. either way, I hope to continue uh, uh, contributing to your Seder. You do, you guys do such an amazing job. You and Lana are are gifted in hosting and making people feel elevated. And I think that's really the Jewish spirit uh, we're looking for. Um, I think sometimes when you have a Jewish education, you think Judaism is only lived and spread through the knowledge and the wisdom and the Talmud and the Torah and the Bible, but it's just as much spread, if not more, through hosting meals and show, showcasing the parts of the coach, culture that speak to you. You don't need to be a rabbi to do that. You just need to be an open human being and bring people around. You guys do it so well and so amazing. I'm proud to share uh, my Pisces birthday month with you and and the extroverted love you bring to, the, to your community around you. So uh, thanks so much for uh, joining this conversation and sharing some of your uh, love for your heritage with, uh, with the rest of the universe.
Yeah, my, my pleasure. I also want to say that, you know, I was, I was doing a lot of like Ashkenazi fooding, food hatred, hating on here, but I still do like the food a lot. Um, <laughs> so we'll make sure I'm not like hey, a, listen, a five star consumer. versus four star Michelin, you know, it's hard to, it's hard exactly. to fully, you know, uh, describe it without, you know, intense terminology. Exactly. And I, and I like to speak in extremes, just it's more, it's more fun that way. I love it. I love it. Well, best, warmest regards. And thanks so much for joining the Rabbi Parrots podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm in the small hotel,